Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode, a very special episode, I might add, of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Um, today's discussion is unique, and it actually goes to the origins of the program and sort of brings in my own background together with the, uh, the position of our very special guest, who is Dr. Jack Green, uh, the chief curator of the Oriental Institute Museum at the University of Chicago. Um, we're going to be talking about the Oriental Institute quite a bit because it serves a very unique function as uh, we will be discussing further on. Uh, our guest, uh, Dr. Jack Green, manages the permanent collections and the program of special in- exhibits at the Oriental Institute. He recently co-curated uh, two Oriental Institute exhibits, one entitled Picturing the Past, Imaging and Imagining the Ancient Middle East, uh, and another one called Our Work, Modern Jobs, Ancient Origins. Uh, This is just a very, very recent program. In addition to overseeing the museum's transition to a new integrated collections database, he is involved in cultural heritage projects overseas, including the National Museum of Afghanistan, Oriental Institute Partnership Program, He was previously curator of the new ancient Near East Gallery of the Ashmolean Museum at the University of Oxford. He is an archaeologist with a PhD from UCL, University College London, uh, and specializes in late Bronze Age and early Iron Age works and has worked at Tel Esadia in Jordan which is also the focus of a British Museum publication project. His related research interests are in the Bronze and and Iron Age of Southern Levant, histories of archaeology, the archaeology of death and burial, and gender and personal adornment. It's my very special pleasure to welcome Dr. Jack Green of the Oriental Institute. Thank you, Jack, for appearing on the program. Thank you, Joe. And I just want to say I'm a big fan of the show. I've been listening recently. I think it's a great show. Thanks for having me on. 
Thank you, Jack. Now, this uh, this is a special program because uh, I adopted this show's title based in part on some of my very unique experiences that stemmed from an association with the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago. Um, I started there in 1973. I know I'm dating myself there and uh, eventually got my PhD through the anthropology department at the University of Chicago. But there is always a very close connection between the Oriental Institute and several departments at the university, including anthropology and geography. Uh, Jack, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the uh, Oriental Institute, and then I want to get into this whole Indiana Jones business, which I, I think will, will be of very great interest to the audience. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how the Institute started and, uh, and, and its function? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I mean, the Oriental Institute, it was founded in 1919 by James Henry Breasted, uh, who was a philologist and Egyptologist, and he was, in fact, the first... Um, Egyptologist with a PhD uh, in the United States. He got his PhD in Berlin uh, in the 19th century. He um, was already involved in, in the University of Chicago in its uh, very early beginnings uh, with uh, Charles Rainey Harper, um, who was uh, also a philologist. Um, and, you know, they, they, they started, there was actually a, a museum called the Haskell Oriental Museum. And there was also the Divinity School. And there were ways in which these... Um, uh, these related to each other. So that's going back to the 1890s. Um, and it wasn't really until uh, after the First World War in uh, 1919 that uh, the James Henry Breasted um, uh, established the Oriental Institute um, as an independent research organization with the um, help of an endowment from uh, John D. Rockefeller, Jr. And uh, this really established the Oriental Institute as a really a major center for the research uh, research into the uh, history, languages, and archaeology of the ancient Near East. And by Near East, we really mean, actually, we include um, within the American definition of that, um, we certainly include uh, ancient Egypt um, and ancient Nubia, uh, but also we include um, what we think of really today as the ancient Middle East as well. Um, and, you know, these terminologies, you know, the, the term Oriental can sometimes appear to be confusing to uh, many visitors to uh, the Oriental Institute and its museum, as well as people who are just finding out about it. And it's kind of um, anachronistic in some ways, the term Oriental, but it's stuck. You know, the people who have specialized in, say, Oriental languages, um, and that's really where it stems from, I think. Um, so it's really the, the study of the ancient Orient, really anything from uh, Istanbul uh, towards the, the east. Um, but it's really become this, this unique, specialized place for the study of uh, these, these, these different segments. Um, so, you know, art history and archaeology, uh, languages and history. And it's that unique combination of research um, and people working together often. Um, in our museum, we have amazing collections that date back to uh, many of the great expeditions that were set up by James Henry Breasted in the 20s and 30s and beyond as well. Um, so we have this, this uh, amazing um, set of collections, um, really uh, top quality research that's going on. And although there are other Oriental Institutes around the world doing sort of similar things, I think we're kind of unique in that we have this very, very special focus. And we also have these very rich collections as well. 
And uh, let's get back then. Uh, we will get back eventually to talking about the Oriental's change or Institute's changing role, and it's it, it's in, to some degree, and thanks to you, a transformation that that it has undergone in a sense to modernize and 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 of course uh, to actually promote public programs and to increase awareness. But getting back to this entire Raiders issue, which oh, yeah. is what how <laughs> I started how I started the program. Because when I was in graduate school, the, the Harrison Ford movies just started coming out. And uh, the uh, original movie was set at the OI. There was reference to, uh, to the Oriental Institute very clearly. Um, he was teaching there. And the name Ravenwood, at the time that I was there, and Indiana Jones, Ravenwood, to me, it pointed out, uh, it underscored the role of, of Professor Bob Braidwood very clearly because he lived in Indiana, the name and his, his role. And to me, it was very clear that Bob had, Bob had something to do with this role. And uh, I was an insider at the time, and I know you have some very, very specific interests and have done some work on this. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on the mystique of Indiana Jones? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's um, kind of the, the tongue-in-cheek thing for the OI. It's something that we're kind of proud of in some senses, but also we kind of want to give ourselves a little bit of distance as well from from Indiana Jones, and I'll, I'll go into one of the reasons why that, why that is. But, um, you know, my involvement with this thing um, uh, came up last December when uh, this mysterious package appeared at the University of Chicago Admissions Office. And it was um, addressed to Professor, uh, no, it was addressed to uh, Henry Walton Jones um, Jr. Um, I think that's right, yeah. And it was a very old-looking package, had some sort of interesting-looking stamps on it uh, that looked like they came from Egypt. And no one really knew sort of the, the people working there. It was an uh, intern or, or someone working there who said, there's no one of that name on faculty or staff, and I just wonder who, who this is for, you know. And um, he um, uh, he then realised it's actually it's, it's, it's Indiana Jones, um, and um, but uh, you know, so obviously this is they opened up the package and they found this um, this notebook inside it, which was uh, uh, supposedly it looked like it was the notebook of Professor Ravenwood, who was. Um, Dr. Jones's um, professor at the University right. of Chicago, at least in the mythology. We've got to realize these are fictional characters here. So, you right. know, what, what, what is this notebook? Why did it get sent to the University of Chicago? Is it some kind of publicity stunt, you know, coming up to the holiday period? You know, maybe it's Lucasfilms. They want to um, <laughs> make a bit right. of publicity for their for uh, trilogy yeah. or, or there's now four, uh, four movies, aren't, aren't there? Um, but actually what it, it turned out after, after some, uh, this, this hit the news, uh, a, lot, a lot of it went out on the internet and this notebook sort of had, it was handwritten, had loads of handwritten notes in it, had, um, uh, pictures pasted in it, maps in it, all these sort of loose letters and documents that looked like, looked like they were trying to be genuine. So it looked really strange. Uh, it went around the news. It was even in the New York times and the Chicago Tribune. Right. Um, eventually uh, this guy called um, Paul uh, Chaforos, who lives in Guam in the Pacific Ocean, um, he said, this is mine. I made this. He, what he'd done is he'd, he'd made this as a movie prop, a kind of movie prop replica. Um, and he makes these to order for anyone who wants to buy them. Um, and he, I think he sold it for something like $200 to someone in Italy. So he, he produced this himself. 
And then he sent it in a package to Italy. But somehow, somewhere along the line, the package inside, which had this sort of fake old-fashioned envelope, had fallen out of its exterior envelope packaging. But the uh, postmaster, the post office in Hawaii, that was forwarding on this, uh, this envelope, said, well, we'll just forward it onto the University of Chicago. I mean, I don't recognize these stamps, but hey, this is where it's going. So that's why it ended up with us. So we got it, and then we eventually put on a little display uh, in our lobby in the Oriental Institute um, because we felt that this was really part of the story of the University of Chicago and the Oriental Institute. And although Steven Spielberg doesn't specifically mention the Oriental Institute per se, he does say, I think in some of the interviews, that, and maybe it's in the movies as well, that that, uh, Indiana Jones did study um, at the University of Chicago. And, of course, where else at the University of Chicago would he have studied but the Oriental Institute, which was the premier and, and really is one of the premier places to study ancient Egyptology and Near Eastern archaeology in the world. And, of course, figures like James Henry Breasted and uh, also um, uh, Braidwood as well, uh, who you mentioned earlier, um, they're, they're really two individuals who may have contributed to this mythological character, the mythological characters of both Ravenwood and also Professor Ravenwood, also Indiana Jones himself. Um, Well, I I can never escape it. I mean, I can't, I mean, when it was coming out, uh, we, it turned out that, that Bob was, was getting older at that particular point in time. And, you know, he did live in Indiana. Yeah. That, that's it. That was his home. So I, it's impossible for me to dispel the notion that at least part of that imagery and part of that persona was, was not copied after him. Would you agree with that? Or? I think that, that's a good summation. I think that Bob Braidwood would all, was always kind of trying to, I think he was um, quietly pleased with, with, with that kind of uh, equation, but also you've got to understand that the Oriental Institute does some serious archaeology and you know, anthropological work as well. So, you know, some of the practices of Indiana Jones in the movies um, are, let's say, in today's world of archaeology, would be quite frowned upon. Of course, you know, he's rescuing relics from, from Nazis. You know, that's really important. Right. Um, and he's doing a good thing there. But, you know, it, there are lots of people who've also analyzed the Indiana Jones movies, uh, archaeologists, and saying, you know, he just digs up stuff. He takes things out of context. He's looting stuff. He's selling it to museums. He's making money on the side. You know, so there's a lot of kind of unethical things that Indiana Jones is doing uh, in the movies, too. And that, in a way, that kind of portrays archaeology in, 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 in a partially negative light. So in the one sense... Indiana Jones is great in the sense that his, the movies um, have really helped to inspire a new generation. In fact, a lot of people want to study archaeology because of Indiana Jones. But on the other hand, we want to highlight the real research, you know, the high-quality research um, um, of these scholars, such as uh, James Henry Breasted um, and, and Bob Braidwood. You know, Bob Braidwood was a pioneer in terms of um, particularly scientific approaches uh, with anthropological archaeology, for example, in the in the 40s and 50s, you know, he was using charcoal samples from his excavations in the Amok Plains. Uh, that's the kind of corner between Syria and Turkey in the north um, east Mediterranean. And through his excavations, you know, he was gathering these uh, charcoal samples, and he was one of the earliest people to do radiocarbon dates uh, and to demonstrate, you know, the 
the, the periodization, the chronology of these prehistoric societies, um, particularly for the Neolithic. So, you know, he was a real pioneer um, in terms of archaeology and, and uh, same as Breasted, really. I mean, he was a pioneer in terms of uh, particularly the study of languages and Egyptology, but also making it accessible to, to a much broader uh, audience. And that's one of the key missions of the Oriental Institute today. I think you're right, and uh, I remember when uh, when the controversy was raging about um, what the archaeologists were actually thinking about, you know, the catapulting of the profession in a sense with that movie, because the first film, Raiders of the Lost Ark, it really, it really caused the profile of the profession to soar, and I think people didn't know how to handle that at the time. I remember this. And I think uh, as we thought about it, as a professional community started thinking about this, I think a lot of the consensus came out to be positive because even though it was glorified and glamorized and a lot of it was, as you say, very unethical in, in, in some ways, it promoted the image of archaeology to an extent that hadn't been witnessed before. And and people started getting interested, as you said, and then, I don't know if you remember, but at the time, uh, people were able to actually speak to the people who were involved in the production, specifically Harrison Ford, who made a couple of commercials saying that um, de facto uh, pilfering of archaeological sites was a no-no, that in the United States uh, there are cultural resource management laws that say you cannot touch this. And he uh, he went on TV and, and just uh, sort of elevated the profile and underscored the ethical aspects of it that, that he actually had to bring down to earth. And I think the message got through quite nicely. And like you say, it, it, it launched a number of careers, I'm sure. And uh, we will be back with our discussion with Jack Green after these messages. So uh, stay tuned. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host Jordan Kimmel is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Many people are seeking to make a difference in the world, but few actually have the tools to do so. Every week, host Mary Beth Lodge and her guests will have you thinking forward and will give you the tips to keep your life, goals, priorities, and choices on track. The result is an easier, happier, and more inspired life. The name of the program is What Matters. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What really matters is the positive changes that you'll bring to your life and the world just by listening. Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein with uh, our very special episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We're talking to Dr. Jack Green of the Oriental Institute, who is in charge of exhibits and curation policies. And uh, we have been talking about the sort of mythologized origins of the Oriental Institute. Now it's factored into the lore of Indiana Jones and the, the types of sort of glamorized um, images that many people have of archaeology. And I guess at this point, uh, Jack, I'd like to get back into what the mission of the OI was. I remember when I started out over there, to some degree, and this is in the 1970s, it almost seemed like it was from a set from one of those 1930s Boris Karloff movies um, with the mummy halls and the exhibits and the very, very dank hallways. And uh, it was very much a professional institution. But a lot of the exhibits were old. Uh, They hadn't changed much since the early half of the 20th 20th century. And when I came back, I I, I went there for a special occasion in 2007, and everything had changed. And there was, first of all, one, one impression that one came away with is there's so much more light. There's so much more visibility. Everything has been upgraded. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the mission of the Oriental Institute and, and when it, and how, how it's, it's being modernized and how its mission and objectives have changed over the years? Sure, I can certainly do that. I think, um, I mean, I've been at the Oriental Institute now for um, two years. Um, and so I've I've learned a lot in that time already, and I can't certainly can't take credit for the changes that have happened uh, in the last several years because uh, it's been a huge amount of of, of developments within the Oriental Institute. Um, and you know, um, I think I speak here on behalf of our director, uh, Professor Gil Stein, who's an anthropologist and he specialises in early Mesopotamian archaeology, and he um, is actually uh, overseas right now. But what what we um, what Gil um, you know Gil's mission really, and it's really been the mission of the Oriental Institute uh, from its inception uh, to really focus on the research of the uh, the, uh, the archaeology, the uh, philology, that's the study of ancient languages and the history, and to try to um, study those things often together. We do find, of course, there are many people who are very, very specialized on the language side, you know, Assyriology, Sumerology, Hittitology. And, you know, that's been a big focus of the OI going way back to the 1920s when it was first established. You know, uh, these dictionaries, these dictionary projects were established by James Henry Breasted. And one of those uh, projects was, was completed a couple of years ago called the Chicago Assyrian Dictionary. And that took nearly 90 years to actually complete. 
but that's the kind of dedicated long-term work, part of a long-term research mission to provide not just not just to churn out research, um, it's really to provide important resources for archaeologists, historians, um, and uh, philologists um, around the world to be using. So the dictionaries, which also include the Demotic Dictionary, that's an uh, ancient Egyptian uh, script, as well as um, Hittite as well, the Hittite uh, Dictionary. Um, so those are three big projects that are effectively still uh, uh, on the books, as it were. Certainly the uh, Hittite Dictionary is, is, is in preparation right now. And, you know, in addition to that, um, so that, that's been going on, these long-term projects. But in addition to that, there have been a lot of advances recently. You mentioned the museum, how it was really old and fusty and, you know, dark and so forth. And, and you know, there's a big museum renovation project in the late 1990s, um, and it lasted for about uh, nearly 10 years in which parts of the museum were actually closed and they renovated them. And now what you have is much lighter, more accessible galleries. Um, part of the thing that I'm doing now is... Uh, almost 10 years on since some of those galleries were reopened is thinking about some new ways that we can make some of those displays even more dynamic uh, to our, our audiences, you know, to our visitors who are coming in. Because another mission of the Oriental Institute is to provide those resources, but also to educate and to reach out um, and present that research and make it accessible to, to people. And in a way, as a, as a, independent research institution at the University of Chicago with that additional mission. It's not just the scholarly direction. It's also trying to make that accessible to the public. So we have a public education and outreach department as well as the museum itself. We work very hard to engage and tell the story of the ancient Near East to the broader public. One of the things about James Henry Breasted was that he was always doing this. He, uh, he was... Um, uh, he was always informing the public about the legacy of the Near East, the ancient Near East, ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Egypt, because at that time, ancient Greece and Rome were the dominant uh, areas, you know, and, and so he was trying to demonstrate that actually a lot of the things that we take for granted today actually came from ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt and other places in the Near East. And so that, that kind of um, idea continues today. We're trying to uh, educate um, the public and, and, and provide uh, a window into this world um, uh, so we can just basically present our research as well. And also, I would say the other thing that the Oriental Institute does, there's a third aspect, and that's really documenting and preserving heritage. So we have our museum and we have our collections. Um, and we are excavating in the field uh, today. Um, there are active active excavation projects happening and survey projects. Um, but in addition to that, we have our collections. So we're spending a lot of resources and, and uh, efforts to make those accessible to the public. Um, and also we're involved in some cultural heritage projects as well, which are helping to preserve the past for uh, the next generation. So there are many aspects and using a lot of high technology um, things like satellite imagery as well, um, and databases uh, to bring all this uh, to life. Jack, why don't you tell us a little bit about the research operations that are currently ongoing and what parts of the world they're in, what, what countries they're in. I mean, the Middle East is, as most people know, uh, in a relative state of turmoil at this point. Yeah. 
how the uh, OI is is able to continue projects and and how does it keep going? What are the nature of the projects right now? Yeah, there are um, numerous projects happening. Um, until recently, there were there were um, there have been about eight. I think there are about eight excavations on our books right now in terms of, um, but. You know, two of those right now, the ones that are in Syria, are not happening, and that's for obvious reasons. The country is in complete turmoil with um, the civil war that's going on there, and so it's impossible to. It's very difficult as well for us to know even what's happening to those archaeological sites. It tells uh, Zaydan, for example, uh, is one of the excavations. Um, but there are excavations that are going on. For example, Tel Edfu in Egypt, which is um, uh, Middle Kingdom and Second Intermediate Period. Um, a site um, uh, which is uh, being excavated by uh, Nadine uh, Muller, uh, who is an assistant professor of Egyptology at the Oriental Institute. Um, and th that excavation is actually, that was going on last year in September. Um, and I'm not sure, it all, all depends on how things are going to be turning out in Egypt right now, because we're all waiting, of course, to see what's happening. But, um, you know, we have to also, um, when we see the news, we see what's happening in certain parts of the country. You can't always assume that the same situation is happening all over the country. You know, for example, the Chicago House, which is actually a kind of um, branch, effectively, of the Oriental Institute in Egypt. They've been there now for um, since really uh, the 1920s and 1930s. They're still still there right now, and they're carrying out this epigraphic survey, uh, which is uh, cataloging and uh, digitizing all of the tomb reliefs um, and temple reliefs that are in the uh, Luxor uh, area. So this is, a, this is a project that Brest had initiated, and now it's continuing. They used to use tracing paper in those days and, you know, course, these yeah. sort of rubbings. Now they're using tablets and photogrammetry to, to record those um, things. Um, some other excavations that are happening. There's um, there there's an excavation that's going on in Turkey right now, um, in southeast Turkey, uh, which is the uh, Zinjili project, and that is um, uh, the Newbauer uh, Zinjili project is uh, focused on a, a site that was occupied in the early Bronze Age, but also in the Iron Age in particular. It's an Iron Age town um, that was occupied, um, particularly in the um, Ninth to uh, eighth centuries um, BC, and there are excavations going on right now in the lower town and other parts of the site. And that's one of the largest excavations. That's directed by Professor David Schloan, uh, who's our, our um, professor of uh, Syro-Palestinian archaeology. And they made a big discovery just a few years ago um, of a stela, um, that's a stone sculpted relief that was found in. Uh, a special room within a building. Um, this was in 2008. And it's actually a commemorative stela of an individual called Katamua who lived uh, in the um, 8th century BC. Um, and it uh, has on it, his. it's like his kind of uh, commemoration, but it's also a set of instructions for what people, his family should do after he's died, like give offerings. And this was a very, very important discovery because it mentions, you know, the, the the soul in in the in in hit the person's soul in the stela. So there's some pretty major discoveries. There's other excavations that are going on in both uh, Israel and also in the West Bank in the Palestinian territories. 
Um, there's, uh, and uh, yeah, I think that's, that covers the main ones um, that I can think of right now. Uh, Jack, let me ask you this. Um, the funding and backing for these excavations and the ongoing research that, that the Oriental Institute has been carrying on for all these years, is that independently funded? Is it endowed by uh, philanthropic organizations? What is the uh, the economics of the Institute, if I could ask yeah, a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it. the Oriental Institute has always had a sort of reputation for being one of the um, best provisioned uh, institutes uh, doing research around the world, but it's still, you know, it's still hard work to get funding. You still have to apply. You know, there are um, obviously people have apply applying for federal grants like um, National Endowment for the Humanities, um, NSF funding, National Science Foundation. Um, it's always a mix, you know. Um, there is an endowment that still exists within the Oriental Institute that, that keeps us going, and that's going back really to, it, to its origins as John D. Rockefeller. But you know, um, we're always thinking about ways to diversify uh, the funding. You know, so we have those federal grants that, that are often applied for by the dig directors. There are also individual donors, of course, who support the Oriental Institute as well, and they, they play a very, very important role. I mentioned that the New Bowers, for example, who are the main sponsors of Zingerly excavation, so that dig basically has their name uh, associated with with it. What about um, the? Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's. I mean, other other sources, you know, of funding. I mean, it's it's uh, the university does support us, of course, in terms of the upkeep keep of the building, and that's something, especially with the museum, that's very very important to us because that's often the biggest cost for museums to, to operate, the operating budget. So to have that support from the university, of course, is, is very, very important. I was going to tell you, I, I never was clear on the relationship between the university and the institute because, in a sense, it functions as its own academic enclave. Yep. It's, it's, it's own, it has its own programs, which are cross-referenced with other departments. And I know there's tremendously positive interaction but um, there is a strong connection between uh, the Institute uh, and the university on a variety of fronts, correct? That is absolutely correct, you know, and it's, it takes a while to even figure out, you know, the, <laughs> the, the dynamic yeah. of the place, you know, because there is a, a department of the Oriental Institute is an independent research organization, and there are, very, there are a few individuals who are solely or specifically you know, Oriental Institute, but in most parts, people, have, uh, faculty members have um, relationships or, or positions within academic departments, and those academic departments include the Near East Languages and Civilizations Department, um, also the Divinity School is another uh, department, also Anthropology, so those are the, some of the main ones. Um, and, you know, I think that's part of the, that's really the strength you know, of the Oriental Institute, one of its strengths that it's it's able to have this sort of umbrella that enables it to to lead on many of these fantastic projects um, at this ind this independent level, but at the same time to to have all these these great researchers um, within the who many of whom are actually based within the within the Oriental Institute's building itself. You know, um, so you might have people a professor who is Near East languages civilization. But they are their office is in the Orient Institute, and so that that affords a lot of opportunities for communication um, and and uh, and collaboration. 
And of course, the nature of the structure really between the Institute and the other departments encourages a lot of interdisciplinary research absolutely. as well. Yeah, it absolutely does. And so, uh, that, and I, I, I see that that mission certainly has not changed. And I always found the Institute to be an incredibly positive, provide a tremendous amount of positive input in terms of, of cross-pollination, if you will, between the types of traditional research that got done in philology and in Near Eastern languages and archaeology as well, because archaeological methods certainly have changed over the years and philological approaches have changed as well. And uh, I think the OI was at the forefront of some of those changes and some of that cooperation. Yeah, absolutely. And we will take another break, and we'll come back after these words, and um, we'll resume our discussions with Dr. Jack Green of the Oriel Institute at the University of Chicago. We'll be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. In the spirit of Have Couch Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Why do most women who are actively dating have to know what will the future hold? Well, for many types of guys, it just means what's going to happen tonight. The Dating Revolution is a new kind of show about dating. It's not necessarily about finding Mr. Right. It's more about staying in control of what you want and having fun while dating. Your host, Heather Jones, is a casual dating expert and will provide the tips and tricks both women and men need to navigate the ever-changing world of dating. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. 
This is Joe Schildenrein, and we're back with our very fascinating and provocative discussion with Dr. Jack Green of the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago. And again, during the break, uh, Jack and I were discussing the changing mission of the Institute and, and how it's in many ways redirected itself uh, from its increased focus, from its very strong focus on research, which of course it still is very, very focused on, to uh, cultural heritage development and to public outreach. And if you would, Jack, tell us a little bit about the cultural heritage efforts that are being pioneered by the Oriental Institute right now. Sure. I mean, uh, I mentioned earlier, for example, the epigraphic survey in, in Egypt through Chicago House, and that part of that is also a conservation effort to try to, uh, particularly with um, sculptures that are damaged by salts and things, you know, like working on recording and preserving those. But, you know, more recently, uh, we've been doing quite a lot of work. Um, we started a, a new project actually in Afghanistan. Um, and this started um, uh, about 18 months ago. Um, we won a, a grant from the um, uh, Department of State, uh, U.S. Department of State, um, uh, to assist the um, National Museum of Afghanistan uh, in its efforts to create a new database mm -hmm. um, and to document the collections that are housed within the National Museum of Af Afghanistan in Kabul. And um, the thing that we're also doing there is we're doing a kind of conservation assessment of the collections that are there um, and uh, really making this the collections more searchable and usable for the staff of the museum so then they can go ahead and plan for the future because um, uh, I don't know if you've uh, uh, ever been to the uh, National Museum of Afghanistan in Kabul but it's undergone a huge amount of change um, and it, it's, it's a really an amazing story um, with that museum. Uh, it goes back to, you know, it was uh, built in the um, 1920s um, and up until really the uh, 1980s, it was a really important um, place in terms of housing the, the treasures, the national treasures of the of, the, of Afghanistan. The amazing uh, objects from the Greco-Bactrian um, uh, kingdoms of northern Afghanistan, and uh, as well as um, you know, you've, you've probably seen those the exhibit that's been traveling around the world. For example, uh, the treasures of Afghanistan, amazing gold work. Um, Silk Road. Uh, Tepe and, you know, um, so it, we're talking about amazing, amazing archaeology, amazing, amazing heritage. Uh, but in the early 1990s, uh, there was uh, the civil war uh, that took place after the Soviet uh, pullout. And, and the museum was effectively caught in the crossfire uh, within that civil war. And what happened was um, the museum uh, was hit by uh, artillery. So there was actually physical damage and the, the museum was effectively partially destroyed, and uh, a, 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 a significant amount of the collections was either, um, were either uh, looted or destroyed. Um, so we're talking about 70 to 80% as an estimate of the material was uh, either damaged or destroyed. And there's also, of course, the archives and the, the records of those, of those collections. Um, of course, in the, uh, the museum was sort of... Um, Still active and going in the in the Taliban era, and it was um, uh, that was also um, a, not a fortunate time for the museums. There were 
struggling, you know, with just basically keeping the, the place open and um, after all those troubles, um, the, uh, the Taliban actually had come in um, at some point uh, to destroy some uh, imagery, you know, Buddhist imagery in particular of statues that, was in, that were in the museum. So um, there was that damage as well that happened. That was around the same time as the destruction of the Bamiyan Buddhas in the early 2000s. Right. And then, of course, we have 2003, and, uh, 2002 and 2003 and the, um, uh, effectively, the liberation of uh, Afghanistan from, the, from the, uh, um, Kabul, from the Taliban. And that, that brought in more um, opportunities for funding and rehabilitating the, the museum. And part of that was through uh, international donors uh, as well as ambassadors' funds from the United States to put a new roof on the, on the building. And so um, in late 2012, um, we heard about this, um, this application to to work on, on a project and we applied and uh, we won the grant. So we've been working actually since spring. Um, we really started the inventory in fall of um, September 2013, uh, 2012, sorry. And so wow. we've already uh, inventoried uh, around, I think it's around 15,000 objects within the museum uh, in, this, in this new database. So it's, it's really progressing quite well. I was uh, I was at the Kabul Museum in 2011 on a State Department mission with some colleagues, and we looked around, and it really, really looked in horrible state. Um, the museum really was was a shell of its former self, apparently, because some of the folks I was with remembered the days of the 1970s and the 1980s before the trouble started. And they couldn't believe it. It's really, it was just a shell. And I understood at that particular point in the time that the State Department was in its initial planning phases to get it started. And they did have, uh, they were talking about that big rehabilitation program. And I'm pleased to hear that you're making a lot of progress. Are yeah. the exhibits starting to be upgraded? And uh, how are they working on that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um you know, we have to take sort of steps one at a time. And one of the things about the the, the efforts of the you know, State Department and also getting other international donors involved too is um, eventually uh, the, the plan is that they do want to build a new a new museum actually on the site, not not on the site where the existing building is, but in the same. Um, there's an enclosure, and within that, the grounds of that uh, enclosure, there would be a new modern museum with, uh, you know, climate control and adequate storage um, and enough room for display. I mean, it, when you visit that museum today, it does kind of feel... I, I mean, there have, have actually been some improvements recently. For example, there have been... Um, there's... Um, a uh, researcher, um, archaeologist from Germany who's been working with uh, some of the curators of the museum to develop some new displays and a beautiful permanent exhibit on the on the recent discoveries from Messinac, the uh, uh, Buddhist um, copper mining site, uh, which is south of uh, Kabul, the new discoveries from there. So they're working on these um, curatorial projects in-house, and there's quite a lot of training that's going on. And I think that the important thing is that this is really a kind of collaboration. Uh, I mean, we're learning as much as, as, the, as our Afghan partners are learning through this experience. And it, it does require a huge amount of effort and patience, but 
Um, it's it's um, the preparations that we're doing with our inventory is really to characterize the collection, identify parts of the collection that will need more work in the future and eventually as well so those collections can get moved into a new museum if and when that is constructed. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's all part of a, a, a big plan. But, of course, with many things in Afghanistan right now, um, we're, it's, we're waiting and seeing what, what will happen. Um, Tell us a little bit about uh, the public outreach that you're doing here. Oh, here in Chicago and the Oriental Institute. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, I, I, my colleague, uh, Catherine, Catherine Kenyon, who's the head of the uh, public education and outreach department of the Oriental Institute, we work very closely together. And we have been, um, we, of course, want to reach out. We want need to communicate the, uh, the work of the Oriental Institute, but also our collections and our exhibits as well. So we have a special exhibits program, which we is very active. We have uh, two to three exhibits um, each year, and that uh, really enables people to come back and visit, and there's always something new to see at the Oriental Institute. And we have public programs such as symposia uh, and lectures, and we uh, advertise that, and we get uh, people from all over Chicago to come. We also put videos of those now online as well, so people around the world can listen to some of those lectures. All of our publications are available free to download on our website as a PD in PDF form. All of our catalogs, um, they're all available free to download. Um, so, you know, we're really open. We try to, we have school visits and all sorts of people coming to the OI. And interestingly, recently we've been uh, focusing a little bit more on reaching out to Middle Eastern communities within Chicago and the Chicago area. And that's actually been a very um, exciting and interesting venture. Um, it started, uh, I would say, well, it's not something that, that hasn't been done before, but it's something that we're kind of focusing on a little bit more now. Of course, in the last uh, decade or so, there's been a huge uh, number of people who have left the Middle East to come to the United States, in particular Illinois and the Chicago area. And there's always been, for example, a very strong uh, Assyrian community um, in the Chicago area. In fact, there have been Assyrians, uh, ethnic Assyrians, coming to uh, Illinois and Chicago since the um, uh, 19th century. And mm -hmm. uh, they, of course, very strongly identify with ancient Assyria, and we have very uh, important... Uh, objects um, and sculpture from ancient Assyria, for example, the uh, Palace of Khorsabad uh, of Sargon II, which dates from the late 8th century BC. We have a giant Lamassu, and we have the, uh, which is a guardian figure, it's 16 feet high, weighs 40 tons, and it's pretty amazing. Uh, it's worth worth a visit to the OI just to see that. Um, right. And uh, we have the arrangement of the sculptures from the palace as well. So there's a very strong connection because they see themselves as, as uh, eff effectively the, um, the, the descendants of, those, um, of the ancient Assyrians. And so we have been uh, engaging a lot more uh, with the Assyrian community, and we're engaging more with, uh, with Middle East communities as well, Arab-American, for example, and uh, audiences. Uh, for example, when we had the um, Iraq... Um, uh, the 10 years later uh, uh, exhibit, which is uh, we, we put on an exhibit in 2008 called Catastrophe, um, 
the looting and destruction of Iraq's past and the um, uh, and we, we're aware the number of people who've come to the Oriental Institute who are actually from Iraq um, uh, who've come through the Oriental Institute at various points in time. Of course, Donnie George, who was at Stony Brook University, was the former uh, head of the uh, Department of Antiquities and Museums in Iraq in, in 2003. And, you know, um, uh, it was really the, his efforts and also a number of people at the Oriental Institute that really helped to highlight the, the problem with antiquities. And so we engaged, uh, we have a kind of um, the Iraqi community, the people from Iraq, um, very proud of their heritage as well. There's a natural connection there as well with our collections. Of course, we have collections from Egypt um, and also the uh, Southern Levant. So, you know, Israel, the Palestinian territories. Um, so there's obviously, uh, and, and of course, Turkey as well. And so we're, we're really, um, there's a very diverse community, set of communities. Some of them are sort of, we could describe as diaspora communities that people who've come to the right. United States, um, not necessarily through their own uh, choice, but because they're because of uh, turmoil. trying to find, you know, right. a, safe, a safe place and that the communities are, are growing. But they, they really do find that there's a natural place in the Oriental Institute where they can feel uh, proud of their heritage and 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 in a sense uh, keep that that sense alive as well. Jack, we only have a couple minutes left. Where, uh, very briefly, do you see the efforts of the Oriental Institute moving in the in the next decade? Well, um, it's a really good question, Joe. Um, I think we're going to be moving more and more into the sort of uh, there are some certainly the high tech areas that we're moving into. You know, like scanning. Um, Scanning of objects and artifacts, uh, uh, CT, um, possibly terahertz imaging. I would really like to see us doing more with um, our collections, for example, of manuscripts. We have amazing collections of manuscripts and also our Islamic collections. Um, I think we'll be doing more cultural heritage uh, work in the future too. And hopefully more, more excavations and, and new field work as well um, because we can't really continue these efforts. It's great to of work with all the materials that have been excavated in the past, but you need to get fresh data uh, to keep looking at things in new ways, applying new technologies to, the, to this material, We're always discovering, always looking for something new. And on that note, I think we're going to have to wrap up this discussion, very fascinating discussion with Dr. Jack Green at the Oriental Institute of the University of Chicago. Uh, we will probably continue this dialogue uh, at some other point because the OI is there and obviously doing some wonderful things. And uh, on that note, we will bid you adieu and stay tuned for the program next week. And Jack, thanks so much for participating in the program. Thank you very much, Joe. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth reality and 21st century archaeology with dr joseph schuldenrein please join us for another unique journey into the past next wednesday at 3 p.m pacific time 6 p.m eastern time on the voice america variety channel in the meantime think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 